Good evening, good afternoon, and probably even good morning to some of you. My name is Mario Dimsey, and I'm a partner at CMS in the Hong Kong office and co-head of the International Arbitration Group. Thank you very much for joining us this webinar, for joining us for this webinar on core strategic decisions when starting an arbitration. As the name suggests, over the next hour, we are going to look at the processes at the outset of an arbitration. This includes what influences the decision to agree on an arbitration clause in the first place, and we will also then look at the all-important questions of constituting the tribunal and the case management conference. These initial phases will influence the conduct of the entire arbitration and are often met with different understandings and expectations depending on legal background and culture. Our expert panellists will look at these aspects from the perspectives of in-house counsel, arbitrator and party representative to give you a diverse view of all of the issues. Turning now to our panellists, thank you all for coming first of all. Starting with Florian Kahn. Florian currently holds the position of VP Legal Patents and Insurance and General Counsel of Framatome in Erlangen, Germany. He was appointed to this position in April 2014 and heads up a department of lawyers, compliance, IP, data protection, insurance professionals, and serves as a member of the management board and crisis response team of Framatome. Previously, Florian was senior legal counsel at Arriva in Paris and held various positions before that at Arriva in France and Germany. He is a German lawyer and studied at various institutions around Europe, including where we met many, many years ago, the Centre for Transnational Law in Cologne. During his tenure at Essex Court Chambers in London, he acted as Administrative Secretary to arbitral tribunals under the UNCITRAL and ICC rules. Turning now to Dorothy Rukteschler. Dorothy was a partner at CMS until September 2020. She went out on her own and now she has the boutique law firm Dorothy Rukteschler Dispute Resolution. Before that, she headed the German dispute resolution practice and the International Arbitration Group of CMS and had private practice experience of over 30 years. She now concentrates on her work as arbitrator and she has been the alternate German member of the ICC International Court of Arbitration since July 2018. Dorothy has vast experience both as counsel and as arbitrator in national and international arbitrations, in particular in post MA and other corporate law disputes, but also in all kinds of complex disputes under various institutional rules. Last but not least, turning to Louise Boswell. Louise is a partner at CMS in their litigation and arbitration team in London. Her practice encompasses commercial arbitration and litigation. She also advises on other dispute resolution methods such as mediation, with a focus on assisting clients to find the most commercial and practical solution for their businesses. Louise commonly advises on complex commercial contractual disputes, as well as those arising from allegations of fraud and misrepresentation. Her clients come from a range of sectors, and she often advises companies both pre and post transaction in relation to termination and cancellation issues, shareholder disputes and post acquisition acquisition claims. Thank you to our panelists for joining us and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. I know this is very general and you're probably very specific in the way you approach it. What factors influence your preferences if you do have them? I do have my preferences, but I, being a uh, supplier, um, rarely have a choice. 
Um, but the uh, if if I would state my preferences, it would be rules that um, give uh, the necessary flex necessary flexibilities to um, the arbitrators in the tribunal um, to create opportunities to opt out of the process at um, at any stage. So that nudge towards amicable settlement, for example, the DIS rules. Um, but as a matter of um, principle, um, our company preference would be the ICC rules. Um, because uh, we know them quite well. Uh, they're an easy sell to most customers, and we are therefore um, uh, it, we therefore established it as a general policy. That's, that's interesting. So there's a, a clear preference internally. Louise, I'll turn to you now. Um, looking at this from perhaps the the other side of the the external counsel perspective. What do you tell your clients when they ask whether litigation or arbitration is preferable? Thanks, Mariel. Um, well, I mean, obviously, the first thing is, if there's a contract, what does the contract say? We might not have a choice. Um, but actually, commonly, I'm helping my corporate colleagues when they come across precisely this scenario, when they're negotiating the contract. And I appreciate a lot of people don't really want to be thinking about disputes when they're in the heat of a, a negotiation. But actually, it's really important on the, at the outset to decide, do you want to have a litigation or arbitration clause in your contract? And there are instances where arbitration is definitely the most advantageous. So um, as Florian's alluded to, the location of the parties um, often dictates where and where you might want your arbitration to be seated, whether you even want arbitration, the governing law and so on. And we can come on, on to those in a bit more detail later. Um, they might also want um, something, a forum that's perceived as neutral. So quite often, if you're choosing a, a kind of local court, um, there's always that worry, um, it, certainly in some jurisdictions that you're not going to get that sort of perceived neutrality that you might get in with the ICC for example or other institutions that offer arbitration. Um, you might also um, think about whether you need urgent relief. Um, there are certain instances where obviously there are certain arbitral rules that do allow for expedited procedures but one of the things I do often ask clients is well are you going to need to seek for example an injunction to um, prevent your reputation from being damaged for example or are you going to want to sue for a summary, you know, summary relief for a debt, which is quite a, a quick and simple procedure, certainly in, in the English courts, which might actually um, mean that litigation is more appropriate. So there are kind of pros and cons of both. And I think it's just the kind of key takeaway here is you need to think about these things at the outset. That's very sage advice. I hope this is useful for everyone listening. We've started off with a, a very important topic, I think. I'm just staying with you, Louise, um, on this point. So when you do get to arbitration and there are compelling grounds for using arbitration, what do you watch out for when you draft clauses? And I'm sure you've got a, a long list of do's and don'ts that you at least apply in practice. So we'd, it'd be great if we could hear a couple of those from you. Um, well, I'd say the first thing I would think about is, um, you know, who do you want to be your arbitrator? Um, and the sort of the given uh, um, sort of process I guess is thinking you know what qualifications do they want do you want what level of expertise are they going to be from a certain place um, or have a certain background and um, that's all well and good but a word of caution here please do not come up with a such a long list that you end up really narrowing the pool of potential arbitrators this is something I've come across in the past where by the time you've whittled it down to who fits the bill are they available and are they conflict free you end up with a genuinely really small pool of people to choose from so first point is have a have a think about that and don't just be overly prescriptive for the sake of certainty because actually you may under, end up um, in a worse off position uh, than a better position. 
The second thing is to think about um, multi-parties. So um, sort of plain vanilla arbitration would obviously be party A against party B. But as we all know, quite often that's not the case. And there are other parties that may need to be involved later down the line. Now, whilst most arbitral rules do allow for third parties to be joined, you do commonly need agreement amongst the parties to make that happen. And at the outset, while you might think in the negotiation phase, yes, of course, that'll that'll be fine. Once the heat of the dispute is um, you know, around, those kind of tactical considerations come into play, which mean you might not get the agreement you need. So have a think at the outset about whether you need multi-party clauses in your, in your agreement and just make sure that they're consistent across the suite of contracts and that they all line up. That's another kind of key consideration. Governing law, um, be clear about the governing law. A recent UK Supreme Court case um, last year actually held that absent a clear statement, the governing law of the arbitration was the same law as that of the main contract. So if you don't want that, you need to make sure that your arbitration agreement itself is very clear. And finally, I guess, coming back to, to the point we discussed earlier about institutions, think about what institution you want. Do you want the kind of um, more interventionist institution or do you and do you need that kind of um, gravitas that some of the more well-known institutions have? Or do you, you know, is it appropriate for just a more regional, a regional institution or body to be to be um, determining the dispute, depending on the kind of nature of the contract and the significance of the dispute to your company? It all makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? A lot of factors to keep in mind. Dorothy, turning to you now, what do you see in this respect in the context of your arbitrator practice? Do parties, in your experience, understand the benefits of arbitration or are you essentially placed in a, in a teaching role for some of your, your arbitrators, um, arbitrator mandates? Do, sorry, Dorothy, you're on mute. Thank you. I'm sorry for that. Thank you very much, Mary. I think you the, those are two questions, actually, which you asked me. And um, let me um, just get back to what Louise said. If people were observing this checklist and really working their way through the checklist, I think we would see much less problems in the, in the arbitrations. It is uh, from my experience, especially during the last three years being a court member of the ICC, I am really surprised how many um, unclear arbitration clauses we see and that really causes problems at the beginning of the arbitration and causes delays. Like, for example, there are escalation clauses which are unclear. You probably all have already seen these escalation clauses that, you know, if there is a dispute coming up, uh, people should discuss among themselves and then it should be escalated to the CEOs and then it should go to mediation. And then finally, you may go to arbitration. Uh, but those clauses are completely unclear and and we very often get trouble starting off the arbitration because uh, one party is disputing that the escalation provisions have been really observed and then you have to have a for example, uh, first of all, a bifurcated discussion on whether or not the arbitral tribunal has jurisdiction. That, that is one issue. Then the other issue, you mentioned that, Louise, um, please make sure to 
to designate and nominate the institution correctly. It is surprising to see how often people get that wrong, although they only have to go to the homepage of the institution and, and, and copy paste the name of the institution correctly. So that is one thing which I see. And there I sometimes wonder, do people really understand what they are doing? But in, in essence, I think, yes, the parties do understand the advantages of arbitration over litigation in terms of that they can have much more say in how the proceedings are conducted. Um, having said that, um, people and parties very often come with very different expectations to the arbitration regarding, for example, the role of their arbitrator or the arbitrators as such, and also regarding, and that is the case very often, how active, how proactive should the arbitral tribunal be? Should the arbitral tribunal, for example, be allowed to ask questions at the very beginning of the proceedings in order to, to make clear that they have problems to understand certain issues, or should they refrain from asking questions? And that goes on during the oral hearing. Should they be allowed to ask questions to the witnesses themselves, or should they shut up, etc.? So that is more on a practical proceedings basis then. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think we'll get to that a bit later with cultural differences as well. But that's something we also, um, I, I think in my own experience with the role of your party appointed arbitrator can differ very differently in different parts of the world. But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Dorothy, staying with you for the moment, um, perhaps more anecdotally looking back on your 30 years of private practice, I'm sure you have an arsenal of do's and don'ts of what to do when, when drafting arbitration clause. So I'd love it if you could share a couple of points with us. Well, um, let me start truly anecdotally. The, in my view, the arbitration clause is a champagne clause. What, what do I mean by that? I have very often experienced that um, dispute lawyers such as me have been called in to put into the contract at the very end, a dispute resolution clause while the champagne is already on the table and the people are, are ready to um, congratulate themselves on what a great deal they made. Um, that is a very bad idea, in my opinion, and, and that ties into what I just said. If you, if you do not pay enough attention to this clause, then you may get really in trouble when there is a dispute. And of course, people don't want to think about the disputes at the time when they are contracting. I don't blame them for that, but counsel should think about that and should make sure that uh, even you know, without making much ado about this clause towards the clients, they should try to get it right. And one thing is, that I have seen very often that, you know, in such a situation, you just, um, 
you just try to find very quickly an old contract and then copy paste the dispute resolution clause out of that contract, hoping it will fit. And I can tell you it never fits. So I think the, the, the worst thing is not to think about the clause at the time of the contracting. Mariel, if I may. Of course. Add to that, I, I think, um, uh, I think Dorothy makes an excellent point. And um, I think one way to avoid that, at least in our industry with in infrastructures projects, is to see the dispute resolution clause as quasi an extension of the um, variation clause. Because usually those infrastructure projects or planned construction projects have a very elaborate um, variation clause with uh, several escalation levels. And if you then um, discuss this clause and then, which is usually towards the middle of the, um, or even beginning of the contract mm -hmm. negotiations, because uh, it's about the delineation of the scope, you can then maybe nudge the, uh, the negotiation partner to the fact saying, okay, uh, let's think this through to the very end, and let's make one continuation of this um, way to um, uh, resolve disputes, um, and and then basically discuss the um, arbitration clause or the escalation clause, if you must have one, um, in this context, which also takes a little bit of the, the sting out of it. Mm. Yeah? Absolutely. No, it needs to be a very conscious process, doesn't it? Otherwise, particularly if it's a complicated infrastructure or construction matter, these, these escalation clauses can go quite wrong quite quickly. So let's move on. Um, so we're in a dispute. We couldn't avoid it, despite the, the best efforts of our internal and external lawyers. So sticking with you, Florian, what do you look for in an arbitrator from the in-house counsel perspective? I think I hinted at the fact already when you, when I talked about the the choice of the uh, the institutional rules. Um, I think what what at least I seek in an arbitrator, and I can't speak for every in-house counsel or every situ or every party or every situation because um, parties tend to be quite uh, schizophrenic about this. Um, is someone who is able to um, guide the parties through the proceeding who is able to um, react to unforeseen events uh, within the procedure um, with um, uh, a great deal of, um, let's say, rigor and, um, and therefore create predictability for the parties and also the possibility at certain points of this, the procedure to take stock of where am I, what kind of evidence am I missing um, how are my chances? Is it better to settle? And I think um, any arbitrator who can guide the process like that, I think, is a very welcome candidate. And and in this process, would you say? I realize you you are very arbitration savvy as far as in-house counsel go, but do you rely on your external lawyers, or is this a, a process where <clears throat> you're you're essentially more commercially driven and you have your your lists that you prefer and and do it that way? I think while I may be more arbitration savvy, as you put it, than um, some, I'm uh, really not an arbitration lawyer, uh, I would say, anymore. Uh, and therefore, um, I think I do have to rely on, on outside counsel to, to help me guide through the different um, 
possible candidates. I think I, I will say that um, I think there is a tendency um, in council to select from a roster that is that they're used to, that they feel good about, and um, I think um, it's a it's it would, it's always a good idea to discuss this openly whether or not disappointment is a feel good factor or whether or not this is a really good fit. Um, most of most of the times. Um, I have made very good experience in the selection uh, of candidates from external councils. That's good to hear. So Louise, from your perspective as external counsel, how do you go about choosing the right arbitrator for your clients' disputes? Well, um, I think I'd say there's a there's, there's quite a few resources out there to choose from nowadays. So there's the sort of online resources, sort of arbitral women, transparency type resources such as the GAR um, tool. Um, actually, um, as, as Florian alluded to, something that is increasingly becoming important for a lot of our clients is diversity. So it's not just coming with the same names all the time. It's about making sure that you're, you know, looking through the pool properly, looking at people who might be a good fit, not just, you know, gender, but age, you know, ethnicity, geographic location, cultural diversity, all of that stuff, so, which means that um, I think we we do we are sort of looking now to be a bit more varied in who we're looking at and who who are the appropriate candidates and certainly i'm experiencing clients they do rely um on us i think because they appreciate we have access to perhaps more um more recent experience and um sort of closer experience of working with arbitrators to to know um who are the likely candidates but at the same time you i think you have to do your homework you can't just come up with the, the same names every every time and to do that i think you need to kind of bear a couple of things in mind um the first one is obviously professional expertise so you know do they have expertise both in arbitration but also potentially in the subject matter of the dispute um because that may or may not be uh, tactically advantageous to your to your client to have someone who who's familiar with the industry depending on what side you're on um, availability, and I know that that's a big thing in arbitration, you know, having true transparency on the availability of that person to commit the time that they should be committing to your arbitration. Um, personality, and by that I don't just mean sort of, um, you know, being able to, to steer the proceedings in a way that you would like them to and whether they're interventionist or not, but I also mean people management, um, particularly um, if it's a three three arbitrator tribunal, but not exclusively, you'll want someone that can manage the, manage the process in a people-friendly way as well as a kind of legal and procedural way to make sure that the arbitration moves as smoothly and efficiently as possible. Um, and then finally, as we've kind of alluded to, is the sort of cultural fit diversity. So, um, don't forget certain institutions have rules that mean that um, the arbitrator can't be the same nationality as the parties. Um, that, that, that forces you to, to think outside the box in a lot of instances. Um, and, you know, think about that diversity. So, for example, CMS has signed up to the um, Equal Representation in Arbitration Pledge, the ERA pledge, which aims to um, have more women um, put forward as arbitrators and, and involved in tribunals and so on. So, Bearing all of those things in mind, I would expect to come up with um, a short list and then talk them through with the client. And one of the things I've learned is, you know, just because they're on, they're, they might be your choice doesn't mean that list of arbitrators is your client's choice. So make sure you've talked it through with them, because the last thing you want to end up with is someone that, um, you know, you, you're not, you ultimately aren't happy with. And the final thing I'd say, which is maybe a little bit controversial, is 
don't always you don't always need to get so hung up on the identity of the arbitrator. It often assumes quite a lot of significance at the outset of an arbitration. But actually, sometimes you might not need someone with, you know, a, 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 a very high level of expertise or experience in arbitration. You might just want someone that gets the gets the arbitration done in a quick and efficient manner. Um, you know, for for bet the company disputes, that might not be the case. But for run of the mill routine disputes, it's probably worth deciding, do you really need to fight about who the arbitrator is? Or should you just basically get on with the arbitration? That's a very good point, isn't it? Dorothy, um, from your perspective, you've sat on both sides of the table extensively. So as as an arbitrator now in your in your um, new new career, so to speak, exclusively what qualities do you think make a good arbitrator it's um it's fascinating to listen to both of you here because having switched hats it's uh, it's a different um role now and i take a different perspective but let me just add one thing to what louise just said i think what one has to keep in mind when choosing the arbitrator and, and that is in my opinion paramount is the whole uh, panel of the arbitrators. For example, when you're as claimant, you get your first pick, then you should always be thinking about who will respondent probably pick and who could then be the presiding arbitrator because that really, um, the, 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 the panel is going to be a team or at least should be a team. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. And then uh, if you choose an arbitrator, he, for example, is not able to uh, communicate properly with the other two, then, then you do have a problem. From my perspective as arbitrator, I think it is very important to choose somebody who not only has a good legal understanding, but also an economical understanding. He is able to understand the economics of the dispute and to understand why certain issues are really important and others may not be as important, but just deviating. Um, that is one important um, characteristics and, and quality. The other one is, um, it should be somebody who is open-minded, meaning that he or she is able to listen not only to the parties' um, submissions and, and opinions, but also to what the other arbitrators have to say. At the same time, is um, um, how should I say, self-assured enough to um, stick to his or her own opinion and then be able to express this opinion in an understandable and persuasive way. And most of all, I think it is very important for a good arbitrator to be able to listen closely um, because very often I have the impression arbitrators uh, when it comes to the hearing, for example, have the feeling they have read everything and they don't really want to listen to what the witnesses are saying and what counsel are pleading. But in my experience, it is very often the case that the oral submissions and the witnesses may change the whole scenario and it, it uh, may be revealed that issues which have not 
seemed to be so important beforehand suddenly become a very um, uh, very high importance in in the whole case but that requires listening and not only listening to counsel and the parties but also listening to the other arbitrators i i personally i think the panel is a team and especially the presiding arbitrator should be somebody who is able to lead this team. They're very good points, aren't they? I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. When you've got a three-person panel, you're very focused on getting your arbitrator, and it's really a conscious shift that you have to, from the very start, think of them as one of the three-member team and how that team's likely to play out. Otherwise, you know, your best efforts to get someone that you want and like in place can can still be futile if you don't end up with a panel that actually is going to work together properly. So moving on from arbitrator selection, we've all selected our perfect combination of everything that um, the three of you have just discussed. So now we're at the face of the proceedings where we're getting the um, procedural issues underway, the tribunal's been fully constituted, and the parties need to decide on their strategies and tactics for how they want to conduct the proceedings. So Louise, regardless of which institution we're in for the time being, how important to you is an early procedural discussion about the arbitration? I mean, very important is the short answer. Um, I think because it helps to manage the party's expectations and the tribunal's expectations at the outset about you know how the, the tone of the arbitration how it's going to be run um, and it's also an opportunity it's an opportunity for the parties to try and tailor that procedure to the specifics of the dispute rather than you know using a standard template that's one of the beauties of arbitration that it has that flexibility and it and it can be an opportunity to dictate not only the pace of the proceedings but also the complexity um, and how and how costly that might be. And obviously, there are lots of tactics around that, depending on whether you're um, claimant or respondent in the arbitration. But things that to, to start thinking about, you know, are you know, do we want to bifurcate the proceedings? Do we want to separate out liability and quantum? Do we want to make any interim applications? Is there something that needs to be determined as a matter of urgency, in which case you might want to think about expediting either um, the procedure or the formation of the tribunal? Um, there's other things that I think we'll probably come on to that, that are important to flush out at the outset as well. You might not reach a definitive landing on them, but things like, you know, experts and disclosure and, you know, how many submission rounds do you need? Those kinds of things are quite important, to, I think, to at least discuss at the start, because otherwise I, I sometimes have the experience where things tend to drag on. You know, you wish you'd put a, a stronger framework in place at the outset to prevent the sort of guerrilla tactics that might otherwise um, emerge later down the line. So um, I would say, you know, think about think about all those things. Think about um, sort of the, you know, the, the disclosure process in particular. You know, parties have often chosen arbitration, frankly, because they don't want the sort of US style discovery or heaven forbid, even English style disclosure um, under, under a court proceeding. That's why they've chosen arbitration in the first place. But then start drilling down. So really, what are the expectations around disclosure? What is a realistic timetable? Um, quite often, I like to kind of draw out a route map for, for clients all the way from the outset of commencing the arbitration through to the hearing so that everyone has a full and transparent idea of, OK, what's involved? How long is this process likely to take? That's a very interesting point to just map it out literally for the client at the outset of a case. So if you have, um, in your experience, if there are disagreements 
um, at the outset of an arbitration, what do they usually comprise or, or what are some sort of typical traps, if we can put it that way? Um, probably the, the the first one is who who the suitable arbitrator is, um, at, you know, and who who might be. And that's that's a, that's a sort of disagreement sometimes even between us and our client. Um, so, you know, having those discussions at the outset is very important. Um, also, the kind of cultural legal expectations might be different. And that might be, again, between us and the client, or it might be between the client and the tribunal or the other side in terms of, you know, what, what is appropriate. And I think I'd come back to my point here, you know, disclosure is a case in point, right? So one party might come from a, a sort of common law background, English law background, where we tend to um, have quite a lot of disclosure. Um, in other in other instances, it might be that there is either little or no need for disclosure, you know, specific disclosure, perhaps on certain points or none at all. Um, and it actually can be quite discomforting for someone, say, from an English law background to be told, well, we don't need disclosure in this case. Um, they, you know, they find that quite shocking. Um, so it's having it's about having those discussions at the outset to try and um, find, you know, what is appropriate for the specifics of the dispute. And Dorothy, what do you see from in your arbitrator practice? Are there discernible trends, to use that term, in the procedural issues that are likely to comprise disputes at the, the outset of the proceedings? I, I'm not sure I would be talking about trends here, but I can pick up on what Louise said. We uh, very often see at the beginning of the proceedings a discussion and, and a considerable disagreement about the, uh, the timing, the structuring, and the and, and document production it certainly is always in, or very often an issue. In terms of um, structuring, um, more often than not, and you would be surprised how often we see requests for bifurcation regarding jurisdictional challenges. Um, very often, in my opinion, they are just ways to delay, um, and, and it's very difficult for the arbitral tribunal to handle that, uh, having uh, always in mind that, of course, the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal is the core issue when it comes to the enforcement stage. So the arbitral tribunal always tries to make very sure that it gets it right at that point. Um, timing, um, there, there is a discrepancy, and that is really surprising, between what um, clients say when they are quoted publicly, meaning they want a very speedy and efficient proceedings. And But when it comes down to um, the, the deadlines for the submissions to be exchanged, then um, you see the parties requesting three, four months for one submission and then uh, three, four months for the next uh, submission, et cetera. Now, I know that um, the, um, it is, there is a certain encouragement that not only council, but also party representatives should participate in the case management conferences where the timing is discussed. But in my experience, that doesn't really help because council and the party representative have already discussed that internally beforehand. And so the arbitral tribunal does not really have much say in that. If the parties agree on a certain schedule, then, then, then 
the, the arbitral tribunal can very politely point out that this is going to delay the proceedings uh, much more than is necessary, but that doesn't help. If there is a dispute, uh, then the arbitral tribunal can really um, pitch in and, and say, listen, we want this to be very structured and very expeditious. Uh, that requires, of course, that the, the panel uh, has discussed that uh, prior to the case management conference and is on the same page, uh, which sometimes is also not as evident as you would think it is. And then document production is, um, I cannot think of very many arbitrations where that issue has not come up uh, in the beginning. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm more happy than not if it does come up at the beginning. I'm very hesitant to, to uh, address it from my on, on my own, but it usually comes up and then you can discuss it and then you can um, discuss it openly with the parties should there be document production? Should there be restricted document production? How much time should we allocate to that uh, procedure? Because if you tie it in very closely and, and, and do not allow too much time uh, for the document production, then it, it, it can be contained. And you know, people, in my experience, are willing to compromise there. I think this flows nicely into what I'm about to ask you, and I'm sure you've anticipated it. But um, in this context, um, have you seen a real difference in cultural and legal backgrounds play out in arbitration proceedings? And if so, in what in what ways? In, yes and no, I would say. I think that the cultural differences are very often over uh, overstressed um, the uh, where I do see cultural differences are more in the expectations of the parties regarding as I said before for example the the role of the arbitral tribunal should the arbitral tribunal be very active or very passive um, it is also uh, within the panel, sometimes uh, a little bit difficult when you have people from different uh, cultural backgrounds that you know one arbitrator would be willing to ask many questions and the other arbitrator is horrified by the questions this this fellow arbitrator is asking and then the presiding arbitrator needs to kind of step in and flatten this out and and kind of um, you know, pacify uh, his wings, his or her wings. But um, there are basically two points of time where that really comes into play. One is what we have just discussed at the beginning of the proceedings regarding the structuring and two, uh, during the oral hearing. But if you're aware of that and if you can discuss that prior to the hearing starting, then, then it, you know, it, I don't think it is so big of an issue as sometimes it is made of. That's a very interesting point. Florian, turning to you, what's your experience in practice from the in-house counsel perspective in terms of what drives 
your and your company's strategic decisions at the outset of an arbitration? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I've been meaning to make a point about what um, Dorothee said about the uh, the uh, the discrepancy between what parties say um, on the outset and then how they behave procedurally. I think I alluded to that <laughs> earlier on, um, and 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 I couldn't agree more because um, that's what I said meant when I said sometimes we're a bit schizophrenic, and I think that's also something that that has to do with the question you just asked and what um, um, Luis earlier explained about the different procedural choices. I think there's a meta discussion to be had. There's a meta discussion to be had before you make all these um, choices between counsel and client. And counsel needs to ask the client, what is your end game? What is exactly, what is the, the reason why you're going into this arbitration? Because um, it could be that counsel comes with all these big plans about, oh, they bring 10 witnesses, that's why we bring 20, and they have two experts, we have four, and then uh, we um, we just kill them with document production, and, and then the client said, well, wait a minute, I actually just used this to get them to the um, negotiation table, so why can't we just play big and, and just not spend so much money, because I'm sure they're going to come back. Um, and the second thing, if you are a defendant, um, it, it can be vice versa. You could be saying that um, the, the counsel could be saying, well, let's just um, uh, make this as, as fast as possible. We have a good case and um, or maybe not a bad case and we can get out a little bit with a little bit less. And um, you would say, well, actually, I don't want this to be spending this year. I want this to drag on in the next year. So what can we do about it? So I think before you do that, um, this this has to be aligned with what the client really wants. And I think I just hinted at some of the strategic discussions um, that you have internally within the client organization. And, and has it or does it go wrong from your perspective? And if it does, what do you and or your in-house and your external counsel do to address it or manage it? Well, it never goes exactly right. Um, I think that's one of the things that that I personally like about arbitration is that there there are always surprises. I've I've yet to see a real smoking gun in a document production, but I've I've been told anecdotally that that there were instances where this occurred. Um, but yes, there there will always be procedural turnarounds, and I think Dorothy made a fair point that sometimes in the hearing, maybe not the facts change but the perception of the facts change. And therefore the internal, um, uh, the internal perception on the chances of success or the odds will change. And therefore you will have to have, um, and that's basically the answer to your question. I think you need to have a periodical meeting with management, with highest management, uh, in-house counsel and outside counsel um, to discuss, okay, where are we? What's our best alternative to um, to this um, arbitration proceedings. Do we have a window for settlement? Why do we have it? Do we maybe push hard with our next submission and then we open up a window? Um, and these kinds of discussions have to happen periodically because in the heat of these arbitration proceedings, you tend to focus on the procedure only. You tend to focus on prepping the witnesses, prepping the witnesses, but corralling the witnesses um, and things like that and getting the evidence, but you, you, you often neglect those kind of discussions. How do I get out of this? And I think that's um, that's the kind of reaction that 
or the reaction routine that um, in-house counsel and outside counsel have to develop together with the management. Can I, may I jump in there, Mario? Of course, Lauren. Yeah, there's one point I, I, I completely agree, Florian. And actually, in our experience, it's become even more important to have those regular kind of review sessions, if you like, of how is the arbitration going? Has anything changed that should mean that our strategy might change? Particularly given that I'm going to mention the pandemic word um, in the current circumstances. And the reason I mention that is because the financial position of both your clients and the other side may well have changed um since they started the arbitration um and something and i know someone's um commented in the in the comments about enforcement of course there's no use in getting an arbitral award in your favor if you can't enforce it and one of the problems with enforcement is if the other side have run out of money you're not going to get anything back so and one thing that we've been actively doing with our clients is not only the kind of usual review process of is this still the right strategy is this an appropriate time to talk about settlement but also what's the financial position what's this looking like and where you know where are we going is it worth settling now because you might get more now in settlement than you would from an award later down the line um so so that's absolutely one a really important thing to be doing with 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 clients and to have that sort of background circumstances in mind and we can maybe deal with the enforcement question later mario so i'll, I'll sort of hand back to you okay <laughs> we can certainly deal with that at the end um, Florian, just before we move on, I mean, Louise has placed the word in everyone's mouth, the pandemic, and we will get to this topic with the very specific context of what we're discussing here shortly. But Florian, just because we heard so much about the issue of document production and you yourself mentioned witness examination, um, how do you approach this or how do you prepare for it in-house? Because I appreciate it's a very different process in, in an organisation dealing with this internally than it is from an external lawyer's perspective. Uh, well, I tend to believe that if um, instead of me, you would be having someone here from the pharmaceutical industry or the car industry or, or other industries which are used to American star depositions and, and document productions and all kinds of document heavy litigation, um, then this kind of person would probably rattle off um, all the kinds of policies they have in place uh, to, to deal with that. Um, that's definitely not the case with us. I mean, we're very good at documenting because we have to be. We are in the nuclear business, but we're um, not so good at documenting all the very important things that uh, turn out to be uh, decisive in an arbitration, like uh, emails and uh, and things like that. Um, so we do have policies that, um, after some very uh, painful experiences, um, we implemented policies regarding um, the storage and, and treatment of emails and, and internal documents and, and things like that, but also uh, the communications with the clients and with the, not with the customers. Um, but at the end of the day, um, this is still a strain and it is a project. And I think that is one of our advantages in our company. We know how projects work. So um, what we do, we would set up a project with an organization with project procedures, and then we would go about it as if it were one of our projects. Um, and that is something that um, I think it has gotten much better, but is, has for a long time not been very intuitive for law firms um, to follow. Um, I think it's gotten much better because um, uh, at least that's how I see it. Um, but I, for us, it's as in-house counsel, uh, we are kind of the, the linchpin between the external counsel and, and the in-house organization. So we need to make clear to the external counsel um, what is possible yeah, and when 
and we make clear to the internal management of you know what is necessary and cannot be avoided even if that costs a little bit of work and effort and even money and um so i think when you do that in the project organization and assign roles um it it sounds kind of strict but at least to deal with an organization like we have it will be immensely helpful I don't doubt, Florian, that organisations like yours are, are much better at project management than a lot of law firms are. Sorry, did I cut you off? Was there anything else you wanted to say on that point? No, you didn't. Great. I I'm mean, just looking many at the things, time. but... Uh... <laughs> um, we'll switch gears slightly now, if I may, just looking at the time and the fact that we only have 10 minutes left. Dorothy, I'd like to come to the perennial issue of due process paranoia, which I think plagues many lawyers and certainly many arbitrators' lives, I can imagine. So I'd like to ask you um, how you address it and whether or not it plays a role in how you decide or conduct or order in, in your arbitrator proceedings. Well, that's, that's a big question, and I think I could talk about that for two hours, but... Um, <laughs> Let me try to be to be very uh, brief and concise on that. Once again, I think uh, due process paranoia is a um, a thing which is blown up incredibly, and um, which is uh, not half as uh, problematic as it sounds to uh, as it is made si sound to be. Um, there are two instances where it really plays an important role, and that, in my opinion, at least, and that is, as I said before, at the, uh, the beginning of the proceedings regarding the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal, there you really have to get it right, otherwise you, you, uh, you know, the whole um, award will not be worth uh, not even the paper it's written on. The second instance where it uh, it is important is when you plan the oral hearing and when you get into discussions with the parties um, whether or not all of the witnesses and all of the experts put forward by the parties really need to be uh, heard and need to testify during the oral hearing. And there um, you have to be careful not to um, to offer the parties grounds for challenges later on. Uh, but if you handle that openly and directly, then I think you are on the safe side. And uh, what I have seen done and what I try to do myself is to, in, in a pre-hearing conference, for example, address that issue. Like if, if, for example, you have 10 witnesses on one side and 15 on the other side, and you can see from the documents and from the witness statements that there are at least one third of these witnesses who cannot really tell the tribunal anything from their own experience, but it's just hearsay then I would be minded to address that in a polite way to the parties and ask the question whether they really want to spend the time uh, to, to have all the witnesses um, you know, uh, testify during the hearing or whether there is a possibility for the parties to agree among themselves that they maybe uh, waive the cross-examination of certain witnesses. If... 
if the parties are reluctant to follow the arbitral tribunal at that point of time, then I think the arbitral tribunal needs to be careful regarding due process. Um, with regard to extension of deadlines, with regard to new facts, with regard to new documents, those are instances which come up in nearly any arbitration, uh, but they are, let me put it like that, if dealt with um, in, in a practical manner, then I think you can overcome these difficulties uh, by, you know, allowing them the, the allowing certain extensions but very restrictively and then also making clear that uh, this is the extent to to which it goes so uh, the here i think it is crucial that uh, the panel discusses that internally and and takes a firm stand on that uh, uh, and that is something which uh, which is done very quickly normally among the arbitrators and to in my experience not very much discussion is going on there thanks for that it's it's a very valid point you can nudge the parties only so far but if they're intent on their path then you have to leave them to it as a, as a tribunal don't you well, I'm very proud that we only have five minutes to go and we haven't had a pandemic discussion yet. So we're going to turn to that now. And I'd like to ask each of you in turn, starting or staying with you, Dorothy, how the pandemic has had an impact on your practice, of course, with reference to things like um, virtual hearings and the concerns, the due process concerns that have been raised in a multitude of fora about um, this this particular aspect of it and what your views are on, on this from the perspective of an, of an arbitrator? Well, I, I'd say, um, yes, it has changed uh, to some extent. I have to admit, though, that I have not yet really experienced a complete virtual hearing with uh, witnesses and experts. Um, I have heard many pros and cons there. What, what I think is very positive and, and what we should preserve even if we are able to meet again in person is to have procedural hearings and maybe also jurisdictional hearings via video conference. It makes a lot of difference if you can see each other like we can see each other here. And, and have this discussion rather than just a conference call as we used to have very often. Um, I, I kind of share the concerns which are voiced regarding virtual uh, testimonies or hearing of witnesses. And in particular, I would say from my personal experience as regards experts, in particular, if I want to have uh, ex expert conferencing, so to speak. I think that could be tricky uh, virtually. And what I think is very important and maybe not, um, not taken into consideration appropriately in many instances, and that is that you would need to have a play a, a level playing field for everybody. Like, for example, I think it is a no-go that the arbitral tribunal is sitting in one room together with counsel of one side and the other counsel is only joining virtually. 
or the arbitral tribunal is sitting in one room with the witnesses and counsel is not present, or if uh, you know counsel and witnesses are in one room um, and counsel and witnesses of the other side are not in one room. So how do you handle that and how do you make sure that everybody has more or less the same circumstances surrounding that? So I think there are pros and cons to what we see from the pandemic and, and we should probably handle it on a case-to-case -case, uh, basis. How about from your perspective, Florian, have your objectives as a client in these proceedings changed over the last 12 months? No, I don't believe they have too much, although I also have to say that I'm yet to witness a um, real uh, a virtual hearing, but I've witnessed um, telephone conferences, especially on jurisdictional and and and, uh, and procedural issues, like Dorothy said, that went remarkably better than present con uh, uh, hearing in presence. But anyways, I think um, what we as um, users of um, arbitration institutional rules have um, seen throughout the, the last um, year is that institutions are starting to move towards um, uh, being more biased towards the, um, the, the virtual hearings. Whereas um, I tend to think also it's a, a double-edged sword um, with regard to the witness uh, testimony. So I so we as user groups have mainly uh, voted for the fact that this should be only if both parties consent. Um, whereas my personal opinion would be um, just like Dorothy's that procedural hearings and even jurisdictional hearings should uh, not um, involve uh, massive traveling. And Louise, any final words from you? <laughs> Uh, I would echo um, what uh, Dorte and Florian have said, the, the same experience for me. So sort of procedural hearings um, and, and that matter, or even if it can be dealt with on paper, um, have, have, have proved very successful. A mixed, mixed experience on the side of sort of heavier, you know, heavier hearings where you are, um, you know, perhaps if it's over a day or if you're involving witnesses or experts, those are the kinds of things where I've had a lot more mixed experience. And I should say, incidentally, um, I've experienced the same thing with mediations. So if you're trying to settle, same thing applies. Um, I, I still personally have a preference for face to face because I feel that that's that's a much easier way of having that kind of negotiation. I do know that it has been successful virtually as well. Um, so to a certain extent, it probably does depend on your preference. But as Florian says, at the very least, you will need everyone's buy in to the process that you use and everyone's agreements. So um, I think it's still something that people are experimenting with. Thank you all for those views. It's it's very interesting, isn't it? The legal profession is so reluctant to to change things at the best of times, and when it is no longer the best of times, um, they're forced to to make adjustments. And I think this has really changed the way people approach, particularly arbitration and and other dispute resolution mechanisms. Now that now that this has become the new normal. Um, to the lady who asked the question, we will take that offline. Um, that's a very interesting question, but we'd be very happy to get in contact with you one on one. But in the interest of time, it's um, left for me to say thank you very much to Florian, Dorothy and Louise for such an interesting and enlivening discussion with so many diverse perspectives on these issues. I think this is the nice sort of, this could almost be a phased 
um, series of events where we discuss different phases of the arbitral proceedings with this approach. I think this worked very well. Thank you also, of course, to our virtual audience um, for dialing in. And please do not hesitate to contact us if you have any questions. We're very happy to, to take this offline if you have a particular issue that you would like to explore further. Finally, please note that all CMS disputes talks are available online. You can access them on cms.law or there is a CMS Disputes Talks Spotify channel, which has the podcasts of these events. So thank you very much for joining us and um, have a good evening from Hong Kong. Thank you. <laughs>